Hello, Shavua Tov, and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Shani Tarragon, and I have the schut of beginning to learn Sefer Vayikra with you. We begin, in light of the brief introduction, with the first pasuk of Sefer Vayikra, Vayikra el Moshe, Vayedaber Adonai elav me'ol mo'ed lemor. Hashem called to Moshe and spoke to him from the ohel mo'ed, from the tent of the meeting place, from the terminology of Ya'ad, of where two people meet, and begins to command Moshe with regard to the karbanot. Note that this term, Vayikra, appears nowhere else in the context of God's conversations with Moshe, but it is clearly a continuation of the Hatima of the closure of Sefer Shemot. We saw how these psukim not only end Sefer Shemot, but also, in fact, introduced the necessity for the Kriya, for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, calling to Moshe. In light of this fundamental problem presented in the Mishkan, namely God's presence resting in the Mishkan, very similarly as the Ramban points out by Ma'amad Harsinai, that Moshe also could not ascend Harsinai because of the presence of Hashem, Moshe has to wait in order to receive God's pronouncements. He cannot enter the Mishkan precisely because Hashem's presence fills it. And this problem is finally resolved by God's calling Moshe, giving him explicit permission and indeed an invitation to enter the Ol Moed, the tent of meeting. We found by the end of Sefer Shmot that the result of Hashem's resting upon the Mishkan is number one, that Moshe is prevented from entering, but at the same time, the second result that we just read about, the end of Parshat Pekudei, deals with the ter- determination of when Bnei Yisrael would travel. The Rashbam and the Ramban both explain that Sefer Vayikra is a clear continuation of the first section, Moshe's not being able to enter Oal Moed because of the static presence of Hashem. We're not going to pick up on the thread of section of the second section of the Masaot of the travels until the beginning of Sefer Bamidbar, where we find that Am Yisrael encamped in an arrangement is going to to look towards the Mishkan to know when to begin their journey. Generally speaking, then the book of Ayikra is going to be a book of commandments that Moshe received in the Mishkan, and the Book of Bamidbar, the Book of Travels. So uh, here, as we mentioned last time, these two Sfarim that form the continuation of the final Psukim of Sefer Shemot specifically, and more generally, the continuation of the Book of Shemot as a whole, is going to begin with God's communication in Sefer Vayikra, and at the same time, also express itself simultaneously in Sefer Bamidbar. Now as we begin with the relationship between Hashem and Moshe through his communion with Moshe, he's going to present the commandments directly through Moshe to Am Yisrael. The second Sefer, Bamidbar, will express the relationship through Hashem's direct involvement as Bnei Yisrael travel throughout the Midbar, and he's going to lead the people in a much more dynamic fashion. We now take a look at what Vayikra actually introduces. The Exposition, or Hashem's calling out to Moshe, firstly tells us, and after Hashem calls out, Daberel b'nei Yisrael v'amarta lehem, Adam ki akriv mekem korban ladunai min ha-behima, min ha-bakar, u-min ha-tzon, takrivu et korbanchem. We begin particularly with the individual Adam ki akriv mekem. And this is highlighted as we look at the end of 
chapter 7, Perak Zayin Pasuk Lamitchet, ends the general discussion of sacrifices with Zot HaTorah La'ula Lamincha Lachatat La'asham V'lamiluim U'lizavach HaShlamim. We hear a general summary of the sacrifices. Asher Tziva Adonai Moshe Bahar Sinai V'yom Tzavoto Epenei Yisrael Lakrivet Korbanehem Ladonai B'midbar Sinai. We hear particularly the commandments of the Korbanot that were given at Har Sinai, and therefore a little surprised that we first hear of, in Perak Aleph, the Korbanot that are given in Ohel Moed, which apparently came after the discussion of sacrifices that were given by Har Sinai. And the answer seems to be twofold. Firstly, we're going to see how the order is switched so as to start the discussion of sacrifices with the free will aspect of the divine service rather than the obligatory daily daily sacrifices. Secondly, the Torah aptly begins with Adam Kiakrivmikim. These karbanot that we're about to hear about are not meant just for the priestly people. These are not meant even as karbanot tibur, but rather the Mishkan is there to serve every individual's desire to get close to God. Adam Kiakrivmikim, we hear then the very beginnings of Sefer Vayikra, the first seven chapters that are going to deal with the various types of karbanot relating to each individual and their possibility of getting close to God. This group of chapters naturally divides into two subsections, each one dealing with the same karbanot, the Ola, the burnt offering, the Mencha, the meal offering, and the Shlamim, the peace offering, followed by the Chatat, the sin offering, and the asham, the guilt offering. We're going to begin, though, by focusing on the first three sacrifices, which brings us now to a general discussion as to how we're going to divide Sefer Vayikra. We know that when it comes to Sefer Vayikra, this book differs from the other books in the Torah, and that most of it contains no narrative or any moral exhortation, but rather pure halakha. We're going to see the presentation of a legal code, only twice in Sefer Vayikra do we find narratives breaking the continuity of laws, and obviously we'll discuss the significance of each one of the narratives, but the multiplicity of the details sometimes lead us to feeling that we can't necessarily appreciate the flow of the Sefer. How are we going to go about dividing this book and determining the structure? So we may divide it by subject, for example, the sacrifices followed by inauguration, followed by the eighth day of revelation, but this uh, is certainly going to be open and subject to much interpretation. So we're going to propose instead a division and structure of Sefer Vayikra based on purely textual internal factors that will enable us to uh, appreciate the order of the subjects and its significance. So we're going to begin exactly with the way that Sefer Vayikra begins, namely the utterances of Hashem. Each p'tichat dibur, each utterance is going to serve then as an independent unit. Altogether, we're going to find 37 such p'tichot of dibur, utterances by Hashem and Sefer Vayikra. And we're going to begin then with what we find in chapter 1, Vayikra, the opening speech from Ohel Moed. We're going to pay attention then as we continue throughout the Sefer to show that there are some some utterances that are very long, others that are very brief, 
but it's not going to be the length of the speech that's significant, but rather the content. In addition, we're going to take general introductions and conclusions, as we're familiar with the parshiop, tuchot, and stumot, the general paragraphs as created by the misora, together with a transition sometimes from one genre to another, the different styles that are going to be to be prevalent throughout Sefer Vayikra, in addition to well, whatever basic chronology we can take into account, we're going to see that the units within the Sefer, which are not part of the continuum of halacha commands, and that, that is not only the brief narratives that we find, but also certain, certain non sequiturs that we'll take into account that will represent criterion for defining larger units within the Sefer. So we'll address those that were commanded, for example, by Ohel Mo'ed versus those by Har Sinai, taking then the non sequiturs geographically into account. And lastly, we're going to pay attention to uh, the content or the audiences as well of each of the commands, which ones are commanded specifically to Moshe, which ones are going to be commanded to Moshe and Aharon, and even those to Aaron alone, sometimes we find the terminology of Vayomer, of an utterance versus a command, such as Vayidaber, and we'll pay attention to these as well. But as we discuss, the most obvious distinction and basic structural motif is going to, in fact, be the terminology of the Ptichot Dibur. So we begin with a Prakim Aleph Ad Gimel, chapters 1 to 3 serve as the opening speech, for, if you notice, chapter 4 already begins with the new p'tichatibur v'yidaber Adonai el Moshe Limor. So let's pay attention now to the opening speech that introduces the basic sacrifices and particularly the voluntary sacrifices. Each of the first three chapters of Sefer Vayikra deal with one of these voluntary sacrifices in the following order of Ola, Mincha, and Shlamim. The discussion of all of these flow from the uh, very first and second pasuk, While the individual decides whether to offer a sacrifice, the Torah is going to set forth the details of how each one of these offerings is going to be prepared. Just as the individual makes the very decision to offer the sacrifice in order to express his hakraba, his getting close, his relationship to God, so too, he may choose the specific korban that most accurately captures his feelings. The Torah doesn't demand that one bring these sacrifices, nor does it express a preference for one over the other, but details the procedure of bringing each one. Our job is going to try to identify the unique character of each sacrifice and thereby determine the relationship obtained by bringing each one of the specific types. In addition to the Torah's introduction of the term Vayikra, until Vayidaber, telling us that the subsequent three offerings are all under the same category. We find this corroborated by the terms of Im that are mentioned by each one, whether it's Perak Aleph, Pasukimal, Im Ola Karbano, if his offering is a burnt offering, and then within the subcategories Im Minhaof or Im Minhatzon, Im Minhaof, if he offers this from the cattle or from the fowl followed by Perak Bet Pasuk Aleph, V'nefesh Kitakriv Korban Mencha Lahashem, when a person presents an offering of meal to Hashem. And lastly, Perak Imel, chapter 3, verse 1, Im Zevach Shlamim Karbano Im Min HaBakar HuMakriv Im Zachar Im Nekeva, telling us that the following are all 
going to be not obligatory offerings, but free will offerings, karbanot nidava. This follows the same principle as the requirements of the Mishkan that were mentioned in Parshat Truma, beginning with each person on a voluntary basis offering a Truma to Hashem, as opposed to beginning with Parshat Kitisa, the obligatory Machatit HaShekel, which has to be brought by every individual as Kapara. This clearly emphasizes the value of freely chosen religious expression and action in relationship to obligation. Both in the construction of the Mishkan and in the sacrifices, the Torah starts off by emphasizing the free will gifts, the karbanot nidava. If a person wishes to bring, he may do so. If he does not wish to, then he need not. This is because where there is no, where there is obligation, there is no freedom, and where there is no freedom, there is no obligation. Notice that the terminology employed by the Torah of the nidava is the initiative to offer a sacrifice as opposed to the obligation. Yet the laws pertaining to the sacrifices are still going to be fixed and absolute and are going to be carried out by the Kohanim in particular, henceforth the nickname given to the Sefer by Chazal, Torat Kohanim. Just like not every kosher animal that may be eaten can be brought as a sacrifice, it also has to belong to the category of behemot, of cattle, sheep, and goats, kosher domestic animals, as opposed to wild animals. This offering of cattle, herd, or flock must be brought to the opening of Oel Moed, a person brings to God this animal that had previously been distant from him. The word yakriv appears here in the Hifil conjugation, signifying a setting of an action into motion, a process that creates some type of inner relationship towards that action. Time and time again, we're going to see over the ensuing psukim that the text emphasizes the presence of Hashem and the association of the sacrifice, lifne Hashem, as we see in this pasuk, lertsono lifne Hashem, or in pasuk yud alif also, lifne Hashem, ereach nechoach la Hashem, all of these point to a type of encounter that takes place between man and God when he offers a sacrifice. But the question is, what actually happens? What happens when man encounters God? Unlike a situation in which something belongs to a person and he gives it to God as a gift, here we're not dealing with a transfer of ownership. The reason is that in, this, in Sefer Vayikra, there is only one domain, as we've mentioned, the domain of God. In this sense, the sacrificial process clarifies for a person and even creates for him the psychological position wherein he recognizes the fact that even before something is brought to God, it already belongs to him. We've already described the intensified presence of Hashem in a Sefer Vayikra and how man has to appreciate this amorphous concept that will begin with a person offering a sacrifice, a step which involves a physical renunciation of a considerable amount of of his property. Moreover, it involves the integration of the perception that his property in general does not belong to him. These steps are meant to dispel the person's sense of control and power, and in its place fashion a more spiritual and abstract position. The next step is the sacrifice itself, which we're going to learn about right now, including a series of actions that relate to life itself and enable one to recognize that life is going to return to its source, whether it's the blood, which is symbolic of life that will be sprinkled on the altar, the person turns his encounter with Hashem into an encounter with something that is above limits. He associates life, in short, with what is above life. 
Let's continue with the next verse. He shall lay his hands upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement. This in itself is a very amorphous term as well, and will be subject to debate amongst the Parshanim. What is this term of kapara? The Ramban, in keeping with his explanation of the juxtaposition of the end of Sefer Shmotz with the beginning of Ayikra, as a means of ensuring that the Shekhinah will have an ongoing presence with Am Yisrael, understands that sacrifices are meant to literally atone for the people. The point of the Karbanot, including the Ula, is to ensure that our Chataim, our iniquities, will not cause the departure of the Shekhinah. Rafersh, however, understands that karbanot are also meant to be understood as a positive expression of the relationship between Am Yisrael and the Shekhinah, and he notes that this is the real, literal meaning of the term korban. The Makriv desires that something of himself should come into closer relationship to Hashem, and that is what a korban is. And the procedure by which this greater nearness to God is to be achieved is called hakrava, getting close to Hashem. Similarly, Rav David Hoffman, in his introduction to Sefer Vayikra, writes that the sacrificial service is bound up internally with human awareness of God. As soon as man became aware that there is a supreme being in whose hands his entire existence was placed, he immediately felt an inner desire to recognize the supreme being as his master and to give this recognition concrete expression, namely, firstly through words, and subsequently, as his emotions intensified and pressed to erupt into concrete expression, also through palpable and vigorous actions, and not only through evanescent words. Rav Hoffman supports his understanding of sacrifices by looking at Sefer Breshit, noting the carbonotes of Cain and Hevel and Noach and Abraham and Yaakov who offers Vachim, Shlamim, and he notes that in all of these cases, the sacrifice does not appear to serve as a means of atonement, rather to express a positive and concrete fashion that will mold the God-man relationship. This is uh, consistent then with uh, how he understands kapara having a positive effect on the relationship with God. The Ramban, however, seems to be supported with the term ava kapara as uh, some type of purification, recognizing that in order to keep Hashem in our midst, we need not only kapara but the term ratzon, indicating that there is a function that is meant to uh, expiate or absolve us in some form. Interestingly, we find that this is an exegetical machloket, a dispute based on different explanations suggested for the etymology of the word kapara. Rashi understands that kapara does appear like the Ramban in the context of iniquity and sin, and they're all used in Aramaic in the sense of wiping or removing. The Ramban, who mentions also based on the Aramaic verb of kapara, used not just for some type of expiation of sin, but laratzon, or to give a kofer nafsho, to expiate our nefesh, our souls. The literal meaning of kapara, explains Rav Hafmin, is from the term of kaporet, or the kofer of Noach in the teva, to cover something. Milgram sums up the etymological evidence regarding this verb, and explaining that in biblical poetry, the parallel synonym for kapara would be macha, to wipe something away, or hisir, to remove something, suggesting that kapara means purging, or other poetic passages using the parallel kisa as covering, giving us a sense that we're smearing a new substance instead of effacing an existent one.
philologists, uh, in fact, divide or dispute the etymology because uh, of different terms, either the Arabic covering or the Akkadian wiping something away. Yet both meanings can go back to the common notion of rubbing something. I can rub something on, but I could also rub something off. So wiping and covering may not be contradictory, but in fact, complementary. And this notion of kapara is represented in Tanakh in various contexts. So what is the meaning of kapara that best corresponds to the korban ula? The key to answering the question is that by understanding the first time that the verb kapara appears in the peel form, which is what Rav Davidsvi Hoffman explains from the encounter of Yaakov and Esav, Yaakov, who prepares for the meeting, utilizing several terms associated with sacrifice, whether it's a mincha, ratzon, ri'iyat panim, kapara, teaching us that the term here designates the appearance of a supplicant before someone who is his superior. Yaakov feels that he yet not dare enter the presence of his powerful and potentially dangerous brother, his superior. The purpose of his encounter with the superior is to obtain ratzon, favor, in order so that the superior favors the supplicant with granting him a bracha. So how are we to understand kapara in lieu of the Yaakov and Esav encounter? In the case of Yaakov, there is a wrong that has to be expiated, at least from Esav's perspective. The idea of offering a tribute in order to be allowed in the presence of a superior is not restricted, however, to cases where the subject has wronged his Perhaps this idea may be understood as the supplicant, mindful of his inferior position, feels unworthy of entering the presence of, of his master. He fears that his lord will perceive his entry as brazen audacity. So his tribute is meant to express his awareness of this anomaly reinforcing the correct perception of the encounter as a meeting of unequals. These terms then of kapara and ratzon are meant to express the aspiration of the worshiper to enter into the divine presence. He brings a tributary offering to Hashem in order to express this as a spontaneous pursuit of the goal of a Jew who aspires to enter before Hashem, mindful of the awesome nature of the encounter, painfully aware that his human inadequacies render such an aspiration anomalous, if not blasphemous, utilizing a tributary offering to achieve kapara. The kapara may be seen, as the Ramban explains, as cleansing the supplicant, or as a protective screen between him and the awesome divine presence, or as a ransom, which is going to abate the wrath which may be expected to ensue from the human trespass into the realm of the divine. One way or the other, the purpose of the kapara is not merely to expiate a particular sin, but to facilitate the encounter of the worshiper with his creator, his judge, his redeemer. So according to the Ramban's model, the divine presence at the end of Sefer Shemot, which may be easily lost, requires man to ensure the continuity of the Shekhinah by offering a sacrifice of kapara. According to Rav Hirsh and Rav Hoffman, the divine presence that dwells in the midst of Am Yisrael beckons to each and every member of Am Yisrael. The approach is an awesome opportunity and responsibility requiring sacrifices which give palpable expression to the paradox and to the spiritual significance of this encounter. We now continue with the ensuing psukim to understand the manner, the detailed expression of how man then will encounter God with his voluntary ola. 
פסוקי ושחט את בן הבקר לפני השם, והקריבו בני אהרון הכהנים את הדם וזרקו את הדם על המזבח סביב אשר פתח אוהל מועד. And he kills Dia, the Ben Bakar, and Aaron's sons, the priests in particular, are going to be the ones who bring the blood. Anna will then dash the blood around the Mizbeach, beginning, as we know, Anna, the north, the eastern side, Anna, sprinkling the blood against the altar, ending with us, sprinkling the last of the blood and spilling it Anna, the south of western side. This pasuk does not address the Kohanim in particular, giving us the impression that even the Baal Korban may skin the animal and then cut it into its various pieces. Pasuk Zayin returns to the imperatives of the Kohanim. The sons of Aaron put fire upon the Mizbeach, lay the wood upon the fire. We're going to discuss how this fire is always, in fact, present on the Mizbeach. V'archu b'nei Aaron ha-Kohanim et ha-Nitachim et ha-Rosh v'et ha-Pader al ha-Itzim asher al ha-Ish asher al ha-Mizbeach. And Aaron's sons, the priests, then place the, the pieces, the head and the Pader, which is a hapex legomenon, apparently the fat that separates the various parts of the animal generally understood as the Chilev, will be placed upon the wood on the fire, which is upon the altar. Notice the emphasis on asher al ha'ish, asher al ha'mizbeach, the fire itself, which becomes part of the sacrifice. V'kirbo uchra'a v'yichatz b'mayim v'yiktir ha'kohen et ha'kol ha'mizbecha ola ishei re'ach nichoach l'hashem. The innards and the legs shall be washed with water. The kohen makes the smoke appear on the altar for this ola, which we're going to speak about very shortly, and with all the details of the karbanot that are going to be more or less consistent with the ensuing sacrifices. We're going to note the specific terminology that's used of reach nichoach, some type of sweet fragrance for Hashem. Pasuk yud, ve'im min hatzon karbanot, min haksavim o min ha'izim la'ola zachar tamim yakrivenu, the next possibility of the voluntary offering, someone may decide as he wakes up in the morning to bring an ola from flock, from sheep, from goats. He can offer it as well, a male offering that does not have a blemish. He shall kill it on the northern side. From here we see the ola is always sacrificed on the north. Then do the same thing, the hazraka, the dashing of blood against the altar around the mizbeach. Cutting up of the various parts of the animal, followed by the fat that is going to be placed on the mizbeach together with the rest of the innards of the korban, after they're washed, and then he will offer the rest of the animal making the smoke upon the mizbeach. This is also meant to serve as reach nichoach, as some sweet fragrance before Hashem. And lastly, if he would like to offer an oath, and Chazal explain that the order is going to be specific to uh, the value. The uh, cattle obviously being more valuable than the behima, followed by the oaf. And yet Chazal tell us that 
Each one is equal before God. Therefore, the same verbs are employed by each one, telling us that it's not the financial value and as much as the kavanah, the intention of the person, as he brings the sacrifice before God. If his offering is from the fowl, then he brings this as either a tor, some type of turtle dove, or b'neyona, young pigeons. Each one that has to be a minimal age as soon as this is indicated by the color of his of his feathers. V'hikrivo ha-kohen al-hamizbech u-malak et rosho v'iktir ha-mizbecha. This is also a unique word used specifically for the sacrifice of the fowl. The kohen takes uh, his thumb, pinches off the head with uh, the, the nail of his finger, and then the blood is drained on the side of the mizbeach because this time the blood naturally was spilled as uh, he separated the head from the rest of the body. Pasuk tetzayin v'hesir et morato benotuta v'hishlichota itzal hamizbeach kedma el makom hadashen. And then... Uh, he separates the head from the rest of the body together with the feathers and casts the uh, bird on the eastern part in the same place where the rest of the ashes of the Mizbeach are. And only then does he take the wings without separating it from the rest of the body. And this also becomes an ola. Notice the same terminology. What is this term of that always appears in juxtaposition with the verb of haktara? What does this verb actually mean? Generally, when we want to translate the verbs of the Torah, we would generally say burn. But we know that the usual word for burning in biblical Hebrew is, of course, the word saraf. And therefore, it's imperative that we understand the specific meaning of the alternative word of hiktir that's used in these verses because we're going to find that every sacrifice has two distinct halachic goals, the zrikatadam, the throwing of the blood, and the hekter evarim, the burning of the flesh. But it's not really burning. What is a haktara? In Akkadian and Ugaritic, katar means smoke. And this is in fact also in Aramaic where smoke is called kutra. In modern Hebrew, kitor means steam, which is a sort of smoke. In ancient Hebrew, ketoret is incense, something that's burned in order to make a fragrant smell. So this apparently is really what haktara is all about. It doesn't mean to burn, but actually to turn something into smoke, something productive as opposed to destructive. There's another use of the verb, lahaktir in the Mishkan, with regard to the ketoret, which as we know, is not only to make the various ingredients turn into smoke, but a smoke that also produces a fragrance. So why is this verb used here by the Ola? Are we interested in the smoke that comes from the burning of the sacrifice? And here we find that there is a positive and productive goal. The action is to turn the physical into something spiritual. From the biblical term, smoke is a symbol of the spiritual. We use the term of ruach, which means the same as wind, or in Greek, pneuma, which means spirit. And here we see then that reach nichoach, the fragrance, is definitely linked to ruach and not to the spirit. The Torah is teaching us that when one brings a sacrifice, the karban creates an actual metaphysical link by bridging the gap between man and God, turning the physical into the spiritual, ensuring that the haktara produces a kind of nourishment, a fragrance for Hashem. That is the reach nichoach lahashem.
Tomorrow we will continue with the voluntary offerings that are described in Vayikra Perikbet, the second chapter that will deal this time with agricultural offerings that are brought before Hashem, the Karban Mincha. Looking forward.